Please open your Bibles to John chapter 4, John chapter 4. And this morning we will continue our study of Jesus and his encounter with the woman at the well in the Samaritan village. I remind you that last week we spent most of our time considering the history of Samaria from the um, rebellion headed, ultimately kinged by Jeroboam to the immediate uh, idolatry. He creates golden calves to their succession, unbroken succession of wicked kings to their eventual judgment by the Lord um, when they're carried away by Shalmaneser to their repopulation with pagan peoples and their attempt to mix the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, with the gods of the nations and the final um, creation of an alternate site of worship in, in contrast to Zerubbabel's temple and the, the animosity, the, the strife, the um, r- hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. That, that's the backdrop. And the point I was trying to stress is that rather than feeling sorry for the Samaritans, in a very real sense, their history is despicable. Um, they're, they're not good people. Their, their, their national history is one of shame, one of ignominy. The contrast is not, the, 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 we're not just seeing this, well, they're actually better than you think. Rather, we're to be amazed that the Holy One of God would go into Samaritan territory, would encounter a Samaritan woman, would talk to her. We're, we're to see grace superabounding even where sin is great. Um, we, we got up to last week Jesus' initial um, speech to the woman. We're going we're gonna to deal with this in a number of weeks. There's 46 verses between here and the end of the section with the Samaritans. It'll probably take us five weeks to get through all that. This morning, I hope to get through the first half of Jesus' dialogue, Encounter with the Woman. I'd like to begin by reading. Um, we'll just read verses 1 through 26. 1 through 26. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Joseph had given to his son, Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, 
Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel at your grace displayed in this passage, um, that you would send your son to earth for us and that he would go to the outcasts and speak to the outcasts of the outcasts, that he would show such grace humility, kindness, perseverance, that he would demonstrate your heart seeking those who might worship him truly. Lord, we pray that we would see and behold the, the Lord as he pursues one of his flock. And Lord, that you might pursue us this morning, that you might call us to you as well, that we might hear the shepherd's voice calling his own even here today. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I tried to deal with how to come at this passage, and we're going to get through the verses 7 through 18, hopefully, what kept striking me was the number of ironies in the passage. Irony, which is, of course, the opposite of wrinkly. No, no, the unexpected, the juxtaposition, the, the you, you think one thing, but it's another, irony. Now, this is, of course, a, a, a master demonstration of evangelism. Jesus here sparks up a conversation with a woman, turns it to spiritual things, brings up her sin, and, and I've seen people um, come up with a five-point outline for evangelism from this. That, that, I think, is fine and valid. I want to marvel at the heart of our God. Um, this is, if you look at verse um, 23, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. This is Jesus carrying on his Father's will, seeking worshipers of his Father. And, and in that, I think we see his heart as he's seeking others. John wrote this down because Jesus isn't done seeking worshipers. And even here this morning, he might be seeking some of us, calling us. And, and for those of us who have come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, marvel at his grace, marvel at his love, marvel at his kindness. So let's look at four evangelistic ironies of the well. Four evangelistic ironies of the well. Number one, the creator and sustainer of all things is thirsty. The creator and sustainer of all things is thirsty. Now, this is an irony the woman at the well would not pick up on, but 
John's readers, namely us, who've been following along, surely this is clear to see. Look back in chapter one. I'll remind you of the bold declarations that he has made about Jesus. Chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not Anything made that was made in him was life, and the life was the light of men. He he frames Jesus as the author, the creator of all things. He is the one who creates. He is the one who makes. He is the sustainer. He's the source of light. He's the source of life. And yet Jesus begins his conversation with this woman by recognizing need. He's asking for assistance. Isn't that remarkable? that the, the, the Savior would humble himself to such an extent that the one who spoke the universe into being, the one who upholds it by the power of his word, the one who is the source of all light and life, condescends to initiate this discussion, and he does so not by declaration of his power and his rights, his greatness, but a request for help. He asks for a drink of water. It's, 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 it's glorious. He humbles himself, here's your blank, and requests her assistance. Amazing. Amazing. The, the humility of our God and Savior. Jesus is not too great to ask for the help of this woman. And remember, not just any woman, a Samaritan woman. And as we'll find out, not just any Samaritan woman, but a five times divorced, living with her boyfriend, Samaritan woman. And Jesus starts this encounter by asking for her assistance. In doing so, we know, John tells us, he breaks all ethnic, social, and religious taboos. And we saw last week there's good reason in some sense for them. Their worship is corrupt. Their alternate site of worship is corrupt. Jesus tells her this. You worship what you don't know. Salvation is of the Jews. Jerusalem is the right place to worship. It's not ambiguous it's clear so in that sense to the degree that she follows their religion she's an idolater she's engaged in false religion jesus asks for her assistance (laughs) absolutely amazing already we've seen that jesus leads in this sense for he has sent his disciples to buy food from the samaritans there's implications for that you're buying food touched by the hands of samaritans you're eating their food That's, I'm sure, got to stretch them a bit as well. John tells us, in fact, that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, the word for dealings, you can, um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, is to share dishes with, utensils with. The whole notion is they're almost certainly unclean, and if you touch the plate, the utensil, the the, uh, dipper for the well, then you become unclean. And Jesus has sent his disciples into Sychar to buy food. You can imagine how that's challenged their Jewish sensibilities already. As Jesus pursues the lost, as Jesus pursues his father's worshipers, he doesn't let such boundaries stop him. And, and I would suggest to you that as he pursues even today the lost, the same holds true. Um, we, we can get uncomfortable, and I think rightly so, portraying God as needy. He's certainly not needy in any fundamental sense. And yet the Bible can make some bold declarations of God's genuine desire for the lost to be saved of all stripes. I'll read to you uh, Ezekiel 18. 
Actually, I'll have to turn to it. I thought I had it printed. Ezekiel 18. There we go. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God doesn't desire the judgment of the lost. Or even more clearly and more striking, listen to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Which are not on my sheet either. That's very odd. Anyway. 2 Corinthians 5. Listen to this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20 and 21. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. That's, that's remarkable. Paul is saying that when you and I, when he rightly proclaims the gospel, when he rightly speaks the words of truth, God himself is making his appeal, and then he summarizes God's appeal this way. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God implores Sinners to be reconciled to him, and he is pleased to do through do so through you and I speaking his word. That's that's stunning. God's heart is to seek and save the lost. Yes, I believe God is sovereign. Yes, I believe God ultimately um, stands behind all things that occur. But yet, at the same time, this is his heart. Jesus asks for her help. He crosses the taboo lines. He he is seeking to save the lost. And that is truly a statement of God's heart for you and for I. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, God implores you through the preaching of his word to be reconciled to his son. We see that in Jesus here. He admits his thirst. By the way, he'll, he'll speak of his thirst later in the book on the cross. He gets more kindness and help here from these Samaritans than he will from the Jews in Jerusalem. So she is astonished that he would speak to her. She's astonished at his condescension and grace. This is not what Jews do. This is not what they do. And John tells us that literally Jews do not use dishes with Samaritans. And we learn from verse 23 that rabbis do not normally talk to women. The disciples are all on a a, a Twitter over that. Look at verse... um, 27, when the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So Jesus is breaking all types of customs. He's not doing anything wrong, but he is certainly breaking the the standard protocol as he pursues this woman and as he's willing to pursue her in a way of, of need, acknowledging his thirst, he's asking for her help. Absolutely stunning humility, condescension, and grace. He makes the initiative. He sparks up the conversation. This is our Lord and Savior seeking his lost sheep, even as he does to this day when his word is read and preached. That's the first irony. The creator and sustainer of all things is thirsty. Second irony. The one asking for water is the true giver. The one making the request, the one asking for water, is actually the one who gives. So Jesus' response to the woman is to highlight this point. She she asks, why are you talking to me? He doesn't answer her question. 
But he says something provocative. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus identifies that, if you, in other words, if you knew who I was, if you had a fuller understanding of my identity, you'd be the one asking me for things. So it's, it's a turnaround. The one who's making the request is actually the giver. The one asking for water is the true giver. If she knew who Jesus was, she would be the one asking for water. Now, John has already told us that you can frame Jesus as God's gift. Jesus is the gift of God for the salvation of man. John 3.16, God loved the world in this way, that he gave his son. Jesus is the gift. Although here, I think the gift of God Jesus is speaking of is actually the Holy Spirit who is to come. Jesus offers living water. Your blank there, I believe, is the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus offers a spiritual reality. And similar to the interaction with Nicodemus, this goes over her head. She misunderstands. Just as Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking about how that's biologically possible. Jesus speaks of living water, which is a rich Old Testament metaphor and picture for spiritual realities. And she's... She's confused. This well, by the way, even the word for well indicates it's, it's from a spring. This is a good well. She's, they're rather proud of this well, we're going to see in a minute. And so Jesus is offering living water. And then there's a, there's a potential play on words because living water can mean running water, not stagnant water. But Jesus, we know, is the gift of God for the salvation of men. And we're going to see, and if we know our Old Testament, we can even begin to see that Jesus offers living water. He's offering something the Old Testament speaks of. He's offering something the Old Testament speaks of. Let me read one passage. Isaiah 12. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Where Ezekiel 36, that he's already alluded to with Nicodemus, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Now, there's a, there's a rich Old Testament thread and line of God speaking of water in a spiritual sense, but she, she misses that entirely. The woman misunderstands and then challenges Jesus' greatness. The framing of the question implies a clear negative answer. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, which is to say your claim of offering me water is a little ridiculous, right? You don't have anything to draw water with. Um, she says, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. This is, this is one of the few archaeological areas that we're pretty certain where it is. This well is over 100 feet deep. Where do you get that living water? And then this next question is framed with a clear negative answer. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. She's challenging Jesus' identity. She, she thinks Jesus might be taking on some airs for himself. Jesus isn't offended by this. He doesn't rebuke her. He takes it in stride. He will correct her. This is bold on her part. Who do you think you are? This is, I mean, and you can imagine, this is a good gift. Jacob's well is, is around today. At her time, it's been around for hundreds of years. The patriarch Jacob that the Samaritans proudly linked themselves back to 
dug a well that is still blessing and benefiting people hundreds of years later. That's quite an accomplishment. That's quite an achievement. It's a good thing. You think you're greater than him? You think you've got something better to offer than Jacob? The blank here, is Jesus greater than Jacob and his sons? And the, she implies the clear answer is no. This is also the, the first but not the last time in John's gospel that Jesus' confused um, crowds will challenge him in his greatness. In, in John eight fifty three. are you greater than our father Abraham? And there's a sense in which the Jews will accept Jesus as someone and the prophet, but the challenge is clearly you're inferior to these prior patriarchs and great people. And yet Jesus still pursues her. So he, he comes to the well, he humbles himself, he asks for her assistance, he turns the matter into a spiritual direction with a provocative statement, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me. She scoffs a little bit. You're not greater than Jacob, are you? And Jesus, undeterred, pursues. Jesus is frequently underestimated. And Jesus is far greater than she imagines. And I think far greater than we frequently imagine. Which brings us then to verses 13 to 15. Verses 13 to 15. Jesus, similar to Nicodemus, is going to attempt to clarify now. She's misunderstood him. He's talking about spiritual water. She thinks he's talking about Natural water. So the third irony is the one greater than Jacob, one greater than Jacob sits at Jacob's well. He, he is, in fact, greater than Jacob. We know that. The reader knows that. It's ironic that she's challenging him. And Jesus clarifies that Jesus offers something greater than Jacob's well. And as if to say, you're not greater than Jacob. Yes, I am. And what I have to offer, the gift I offer, is greater than what Jacob gave. And, and like I said, Jacob's well is a good gift. He dug it, his servants dug it, and for hundreds and hundreds of years it provided good, fresh water, life-giving water for the people of the area. That's a great blessing. And Jesus has something better than that. that he says plainly. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw again. And so the contrast is plain. All who drink of Jacob's well will thirst again. No matter how good the water is, no matter how clean the water is, no matter how fresh it is, you get thirsty again. And you've got to come back, and you've got to come back, and you've got to come back. Jesus is giving or offering to give something categorically superior. He's offering to give a water that not only quenches your thirst, but keeps your thirst quenched. He's offering true satisfaction, true invigorating strength. This is partly why I think this is referencing the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who will lead us, who will strengthen us, who will fill us, will indwell us, cause us to persevere, well up hope in us, And then Jesus makes it clear that the water he will give will become a spring of life. A spring of life, which even now more clearly links with Old Testament passages. The wells of salvation we read about in Isaiah 12. Or listen to Isaiah 49, 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoner, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. 
They shall feed along the ways, on all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. So Jesus is, is making it clear, I think, further. This is spiritual sustenance. This is spiritual power and satisfaction that he's offering. And again, she misunderstands. Okay, give, give me this water. This, by the way, this, her response here helps reinforce, I think, the suggestion that she's coming here to avoid people because clearly the trek out to the well is arduous. She'd rather avoid it. She says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She'd rather not make the trip, which raises the question, why on earth would you make an arduous trip at high noon? And you can't be certain, but I think a plausible explanation is because at least then you'll have some privacy. At least then you won't have others around you. And with what we learn of her history, that's a plausible enough reason. And so she asked for this water. But Jesus doesn't want to give the gift until it's understood. And so he turns the discussion someplace slightly awkward, sensitive for her. We get to our fourth and final irony. The one speaking of her husband knows all. The one speaking of her husband knows all. And what I mean is this. Reading this and in her interaction with Jesus, when he says, call your husband, you might think Jesus made a misstep. She says, well, I have no husband. Maybe Jesus goofed there. No, no. We're going to find out actually this was a ploy. This was intentional. And he knows all about her. There's, there's irony there. So Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus tells her to call her husband. Now, I think there's two reasons he does this. The first is at a simply proprietary level of what's appropriate. This is a wholly appropriate thing. If we're going to talk further, in other words, if, if you want me to give you this water, go get your husband. Jesus' disciples marvel that he would be a rabbi talking to a woman. So there's nothing necessarily odd about him saying this, but we know from where this is going and from what he already knows that Jesus is attempting to help the woman to see her need for his water. The, the water Jesus is offering, the satisfaction Jesus is offering, relates to and will quench and will deal with her sin, her shame. And so he's, he's turning the conversation to show and help lead her in what his water addresses and her need of it. And her response is true, true enough, and yet clearly she's dodging the reality. She, she speaks truly, yet hides her sin in shame. Jesus will point that out. So he says, go call your husband. She says, well, I, I have no husband. And then Jesus gently yet firmly reveals the truth about her, gently but firmly reveals the truth about her. And he says, you are right in saying I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. So the reality is this woman, who's already a Samaritan, is a fornicator and likely an adulteress. A fornicator and likely an adulteress. We know she's a fornicator because she's living with and having relations with a man she's not married to. Uh, I think the reason why it's likely, almost certain she's an adulteress, is that Jesus says both pieces. It's conceivable she's been widowed 
five times. It's also conceivable she's the innocent party in in a divorce five times. But if she were righteous in the disillusionment of those marriages, why would Jesus bring it up here? Why not just say, if, assuming, if you want to grant she was the righteous party, she's either been divorced because her husband committed adultery or she's been widowed, then why, why mention it? Why not just say, you're right, you don't have a husband, you're living with a guy and he's not your husband. Jesus brings up the five marriages in the same context, suggesting there's some stain, some shame, some ignominy from them. And certainly she's not evidencing sexual morality now, so it's not a stretch to imagine that same lawless behavior extends backwards to her previous marriages. Can't be certain, but I think highly likely that she's an adulteress as well. Um, so, so why does Jesus do this? Why, why go here? Um, why bring up something awkward? Because Jesus, even as we've seen his humility, his compassion in pursuing this woman, his, his, his desire for her to come to know him, to be a worshiper of God, recognizes there is no coming to know God. There is no coming to Christ. There is no salvation that doesn't deal rightly with an acknowledged sin. So you're blank here. She must be willing to be honest about her sin. And the reason most of us don't want to be honest about our sin is we're afraid that if we speak honestly and openly, you'll hate us and despise us and want nothing to do with us. Jesus wants her to address this. He wants her to deal with this. And he's not doing it to shame her. He's doing this because she needs to recognize this. This is where she's going to see her need. This is what Jesus' water deals with, guilt from things like this. She must be willing to be honest about her sin. Turn to me to 1 John. This is exactly what John teaches himself later in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 5, chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the first reality here is that you can't be walking in darkness and claim to know and be in fellowship with God. You're lying. Our fellowship with God and our fellowship with one another is predicated, preconditioned on our walking in darkness the truth, and the light. Verse 8, if we, oh, sorry, um, verse 6, sorry, if we, oh, I already read 6, 7, but if we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you're not willing to acknowledge your sin, John just said, you deceive, yourself deceived, and the truth's not in you. Verse 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, Jesus' cleansing forgiveness is for those who will confess, who will speak truly and rightly about their sin. I believe that's what Jesus is doing here. She's misunderstood him. She thinks he's talking about natural water. And so he turns the conversation to deal with something she's shamed of her own sinful past. 
Let's see how she deals with it. And, and I think she has a mixed response. She owns it. She, she's, we'll look at this next week, but she says, Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. What she doesn't say is, Nuh-uh, or who told you? Or no, that's not how it went down. She owns it. She does take it on the chin. Sir, you're a prophet, which is to say you've spoken truly. Now, she will try to change the topic and go someplace else. But if you look at her a little later in chapter 4, I think we see that she is willing to speak more and more honestly about this. When she goes to her hometown in verse 29, Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, when she goes and witnesses to her village, she's acknowledging and speaking of, I mean, it's going to raise questions. What, what did he tell you you did? I mean, she's open to the possibility that someone's going to ask her and she might have to say, well, he told me about my five marriages. She told me about my immoral relationship now. She's not hiding it here, in other words. Um, so by the end of her encounter with Jesus, I think she, she is willing to deal openly with this. Right here, she takes it on the chin. She will change, change the topic. But I want to pause here because we have communion this morning and just try to bring this to a close with one last point. What this means is this, and, and this is wonderful and, and challenging. On the one hand, Jesus knows all she's ever done. She freely confesses this to the people in her town. And that that's, can be scary because he, he knows about the marriages, the failed marriages. He, he knows about the ongoing immorality and fornication. And yet, he does know this, and that's, that can be frightening, but, but he loves her anyway, doesn't he? I mean, isn't everything he's been doing love? He's been pursuing her. He starts a conversation with her. He asks for her help. He, he turns it to spiritual things. In probably the most amazing act, look, look at verse 26. If you line up and try to harmonize the Gospels, and you can remember in the Gospels, Jesus is cagey at times about his identity, such that even on the night when they try him, before they crucify him, they have to say, tell us plainly, who are you? He'll, he'll tell Peter and the disciples in Luke 9, he'll tell them, where actually he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And you're the Christ. He says, you got it right. As far as I can tell, this is the earliest time in any of the Gospels in Jesus' life where he plainly, unambiguously, and clearly declares his identity, and he does it to this woman. Just absolutely amazing. I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. No son of man language. No, no coyness. No, no subterfuge. Plain, unambiguous declaration. Jesus loves this woman. He is being loving to her. And this is, again, I believe, God's heart to the lost. Now, the, the challenge for us, I'm going to try to bring this to a head, is on the one hand, there can be no mincing words about sin, spiritual realities. We so often think love means affirmation. You love me if you affirm me. You love me if you tell me the choices I've made and my lifestyle are right. And if you don't, you hate me. Jesus loves this woman and is acting in love towards this woman even as he tells her, you worship what you don't understand. It's not this mountain, it's that mountain. He deals with her sin. God's love for us is in spite of our sinfulness. God's love for us is not making little of our sin. You're far better than you think you are. It's really other people's fault. No, no, no. Jesus' pursuit of sinners doesn't involve minimizing their sin. It does involve being fully aware, 
understand this. God knows your deepest, darkest secrets. He, he, he made you. He formed you. He's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. He, he's everywhere you've ever been. And he knows that. And he is willing to reach out in love and forgiveness to you. Can, can you be honest about your sin and your dealings and your life? There's no point pretending otherwise. Here is a Savior who will not turn away. You won't disgust him. But you must deal honestly with your sin. That's what he's doing here, and that's his offer to us. God is seeking people to worship him. That's what Jesus says plainly in this passage. He's seeking people. God is seeking. We heard in in 2 Corinthians how when God's gospel is proclaimed, God himself is appealing, pleading with people to be reconciled to Christ. The gift is free. The living water is free. But Jesus won't give her the living water till she understands what she's asking for. She says, give it to me. And he, he doesn't say, well, here it is. He Rather, you need to understand what you're saying. You need to understand who I am. You need to be honest about who you are. And, and that same truth applies to us as well. Um, the one speaking knows all. God is seeking to save the lost. He is seeking true worshipers. He is often underestimated. And, and we want from him all the wrong things at times. She's interested in a water so she doesn't have to go to a well. And Jesus is offering a water that cleanses her sin, her adultery, her fornication. It will give her sustenance and strength. Now, I think John wrote this so we could draw these conclusions because if you look in verse 13 and 14, what Jesus says, because what Jesus says to her in verse 10 is second person singular. You, if you knew, you would ask. But he shifts from that to third person in verse 14. Jesus answered her, said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's talking to a woman. Why does he switch it to the third person? Because this is perpetually true. This is a truism. This isn't just uniquely true for her. And John wants us to know that because he wants to put it on the table for us as well. So as we read this passage, I believe John wants us to see a Savior seeking and saving the lost, seeking and saving even you. A Savior who knows about your past, who knows about your sin and your shame, and is prepared to forgive you and embrace you and give you this water, but you also must be willing to deal with and acknowledge the reality. This is God's heart. 2 Corinthians 5 the, the best summary of the gospel I'm aware of. Uh, there are many good passages, but the best summary I'm aware of. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus will die on the cross in part for her fornication, for her adulteries, for her sin. He willingly will take her sin upon his shoulders. He's, he's well aware of it. And not that he turns from it or shrinks back from it, but she must be willing to deal with it honestly. We must be willing to deal with it honestly and not kid ourselves. God's love still reaches out to us. He is still seeking. 
Let's close in a word of prayer and we'll get ready for our time of communion. Lord God, your, your grace is marvelous. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even further. You um, seek and save your sheep. You, you don't desire that any should perish. Your love for us is seen for the entire world that you sent your son so that anyone, each and everyone who believes in him might be saved. Lord God, as we come to this memorial table um, that you, your son instituted, may we come rightly. May we come recognizing the reality of our sin, not kidding ourselves either, rejoicing that there is full atonement, full forgiveness, superabundant grace, and that you bid us to come, you plead with us to come, you implore us to be reconciled to you through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.